Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Stephen DeLay. Last name is spelled D-E-L-A-Y. He was on my show uh, talking about a book about Terrence Malick, and we discussed that. It was Life Above the Clouds. Philosophy in the films of Terrence Malick. It was great to read that. It kind of brought back some of the ideas of the films that I had watched of his, but also some of the ones that I haven't watched and want to watch. And it was also very well received by my audience, my listeners. But uh, we were talking after that show about doing some others, and I noticed Steve is like a prodigious author and written many things. So he sent me a book, and if you're watching this on Twitter or Rockfin, you'll see the cover is, and the title is, Finding Meaning, Essays on Philosophy, Nihilism, and the Death of God. And it's really interesting and timely book. I think it's important for people to understand kind of the, the situ cultural situation we're in and that it didn't kind of appear out of nowhere. Kind of goes back uh, through the centuries, actually. But more recently, definitely the late 19th and 20th century. But uh, he's also written Elijah Newman Died Today, Everything, Faint Not, In the Spirit, Before God, and Phenomenology in France. But And this one, I think this, there were essays on this subject in an online journal called 316 AM. So I can put a link to that. People can check that out. But Stephen DeLay, welcome back to the show. Hey, William. How are you? Thanks for having I'm me. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, good. Glad to have you back. Um, so for people who may not have heard our earlier show or had heard your name, maybe you can do a little brief overview and what led up to putting together this collection of essays, Finding Meaning. I'm an academic philosopher. Uh, I'm interested mainly in uh, 20th century post-Kantian philosophy, so uh, particularly the traditions of phenomenology and then also existentialism. And I guess you could consider my work a, a form of Christian ex existentialism. I'm a Christian philosopher. And uh, there's a guy in London named Richard Marshall, who is an artist, but also a philosopher, who for a number of years has been running a online interview series where he interviews academic philosophers and uh, in 2019, he interviewed me. And then a little while after that, he asked me whether I wanted to edit an online series of essays on the topic of my choosing. So I agreed to do that for Richard. And uh, I was trying to think, well, what exactly do I want people to write on? I said, well, how about meaning or nihilism or the meaning of life? Which in some ways is one of the most fundamental philosophical questions that's always been around. So I commissioned a number of essays from different academic philosophers to write on that. And this uh, was done in 20 and 21. And then we decided to turn it into a print volume. So the contributors reworked their essays. And then uh, that print volume came out earlier this year. And uh, this, this is the result of that. All right. So that's October 2023. This mm -hmm. comes out. And a kind of what was your thinking? What was the thinking of the contributors of why? They wanted to write these essays and kind of uh, put this together in a in a text for readers. Well, one of the reasons is that academic philosophers tend to get bogged down and mired down in really sort of uh, esoteric, kind of arid uh, discussions that can almost kind of be boring. Uh, that's just the way that the the secondary literature wakes up, uh, works out. And then, in order to get tenure and promotion and these things of this nature, you have to make kind of small little contributions to ongoing debates. So I wanted to reach out to a number of people who I thought would be interested in just kind of getting back to basics and just writing from their own point of view about a basic fundamental question, which is what is the meaning of life? 
And this attracted them for that reason, because I think it gave them an opportunity to do the kind of philosophy that may have initially drawn them to philosophy as an academic discipline when they were undergraduates. And by the time you progress through undergraduate studies and then on to graduate school and become a professor, that kind of gets beaten out of you. That's sort of just fundamental interest in the basic questions. And so that was my hope was that they would write essays that would draw on their philosophical expertise, but would be written in a way that would be accessible to just anybody who's interested in these questions about nihilism and uh, meaning and, and the existence of God. And so that's the result in the volume, I think is a pretty wide range of essays. Uh, as the editor, of course, I don't agree with all the contributions. So there's a number of different views uh, on offer uh, in the volume, but I think we cover a lot of territory and, and all, all the different kind of views that I consider that are out there today in the philosophical world are represented. So. Gotcha. And so, I mean, this kind of philosophical change, something happened where kind of modern, the modern philosophic tradition embraced this kind of idea or word nihilism and the death of God. Can you define nihilism and then how some of these notable philosophers kind of integrate or believe this God is dead uh, concept. The The meaning of nihilism is a thorny topic because it can mean a lot of things to different people depending on the context. And so part of what's going on in this volume is people are trying to work out what exactly nihilism is. What does it signify? Uh, how did it come to be? What does its future look like? How do we respond to it? Uh, what's the cause of it? Now, etymologically, as a philosophical term of art, the, the word originates in the 18th century with a uh, German philosopher who's now kind of considered as almost proto-existentialist. His name was Friedrich Jacobi, and he was a Christian philosopher, and he was a figure that has come to be associated with what's called the counter-enlightenment. So Jacobi was working uh, in response to Enlightenment figures like Kant, and Jacobi was an early critic of this, these sort of Enlightenment projects of metaphysics, and he thought that uh, inadvertently a lot of these metaphysical systems would actually lead to what he calls nihilism. And by nihilism, Jacobi means the denial of things that we in ordinary common experience take to be apparent or self-evident. So like things, for example, like the existence of a personal uh, self, that you are the same person at the time, that you are William Ramsey. Uh, that, well, maybe there is no William Ramsey because the, the self is an illusion. This is something that Jacobi was concerned might come about. Uh, denials of everyday moral, morals, right? So from a scientific perspective, naturalistic perspective, you might think, well, there's no room in the universe for moral truths or moral facts. Jacobi was inter uh, concerned that the Enlightenment project of reason was going to inadvertently undermine the basis or the foundation of uh, morality. And so uh, he, he coined this term nihilism as uh, to, to describe this phenomenon that he saw coming, which would be the lack of credibility or the, the undermining of our everyday belief in, in, in the world as it appears to us. That might lead to this kind of full-blown sort of skepticism. Right. And so we were kind of talking in the pre-show the kind of influence of nihilistic thinking from back then, turn of the century, 19th to 20th century, I think it's Jacobi, right, to postmodernism, right? So there, this is kind of the same kind of uh, philosophy of nothingness or no meaning to into the present days. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So it's a very kind of convoluted, long, long running history from Jacobi in the in the 18th century to where we are now. But just to pick out maybe some of the key moments in intellectual history that sort of shaped 
the reception of the idea and, and where we are now as a culture. Because I think one thing we can discuss in, in a moment after maybe I've just laid out some of the, the key uh, way lanes along the intellectual history here is how exactly is intellectual history, the history of philosophy, shaping culture or history as such? And there's some kind of interesting connection between the two. So, I mean, one thing that I think is important to emphasize is that contrary to maybe what, what a lot of people might think, these sort of philosophical debates and discussions do have an influence on the culture at large, even if most people don't see that or, or understand that for themselves. So uh, I mentioned Jacobi, who's this counter-enlightenment figure, sort of proto-existentialist, a Christian who's concerned that the Enlightenment project of reason, these grandiose metaphysical systems, are going to inadvertently call into question uh, a number of truths that, that we take to be self-evident about uh, everyday experience. The next key moment, uh, you might think, is probably Nietzsche. Um, and Nietzsche is important, of course, because he's the one who coins the term the death of God. Uh, this occurs in a book of his called The Gay Science. He mentions it elsewhere. And so everybody's heard the, the mantra of the death of God. It's Nietzsche who coins it. And uh, academics debate uh, quite a bit about what Nietzsche means by this. And so a number of the essays in this volume take up that question of what, is, what does Nietzsche mean by the death of God? But uh, just to briefly summarize some of the kind of competing views out there. Um, so one view is that uh, Nietzsche is himself propounding the death of God in the voice of the madman. So in the gay science, there's this vignette in which uh, it's a madman who comes into a town square and announces the death of God. And so commentators have had questions about, well, who is, where do we situate Nietzsche himself? Is he actually identifying his own views with that of the madman? Or is he in some ways disagreeing with the madman? But in any case, if you take what the madman says at face value, the idea is that uh, by the death of God, he means the view that belief in God is no longer credible or believable. It's no longer something that we can take seriously. Part of this has to do again with the scientific revolution and the supposed idea that the natural sciences have kind of upended uh, the everyday commonsensical view of the nature of reality. And so things like uh, heliocentrism and evolution and all these sort of other supposed scientific discoveries have undermined the, uh, the the traditional conception of man as being made in the image of God. And then the idea would be that, well, actually we've come to believe or come to see that uh, there is no God. And so then the question becomes, well, what do we do in the wake of the death of God? How do we respond? And uh, Nietzsche's view is that actually this is good. So Nietzsche thinks that belief in God has led to a kind of moral climate that he actually thinks stifles and stunts uh, human potential. And so this is where we get into the idea of the Ubermensch, which is something that actually Dostoevsky anticipated and sort of criticized in a work like Crime and Punishment with Raskolnikov. But this idea that we've now seen that's, you know, throughout film and art and literature, this idea of being liberated from the shackles of common morality, the idea that morality is just convention, that there's no real truth behind it, right? That it was just a prejudice that was in some ways uh, restraining us from, from being who we really want to be. And that the great man is the one who sort of disencumbers himself from these moral prohibitions, sees through the sees through the lie, and no longer lives as a sucker, but lives as it were beyond good and evil. This is Nietzsche's idea, and so Nietzsche thinks that the the supposed fact that European civilization, European culture in the 19th century and beyond has is slowly beginning to realize that belief in God is no longer credible. This is going to undermine the uh, the culture of Europe 
Western civilization in such a way that Christianity and Christian morality will die out and then something new will come that will be better. And Nietzsche is very excited about this. And so he actually sees the supposed death of God as a good thing. Now, of course, other people entirely disagree. You might disagree about whether or not God has actually died. So there's plenty of people right. out there. There's plenty of people out there, myself included, who think that um, actually, you no, know, God exists and that there's plenty of good reason to think that God exists. And that the fact that as a culture, we're nihilistic in the sense that uh, a belief in God no longer organizes and structures our everyday practices in the way that it once did doesn't mean that, that God no longer exists. Um, so, you know, that's one point of contention. The other point of contention is that you might think, well, even if God doesn't exist, it, it's a bad thing for people to come to believe this as well. And it actually is going to be bad for society uh, as we become more secular. So this is this is a debate with Nietzsche, whether or not actually there is a God and um, what is the role that belief in God should have in society? Should we be encouraging a kind of secularism where we move beyond uh, religiosity and Christian morality, or should we be trying to preserve that and strengthen it? This is, this is something to right. debate with and he kind of had that whole view, Nietzsche did, that because God's dead, he realizes God is dead. The you, the world has lived under 2,000 years of uh, like an illusion. Like So for him, that it's almost like this is an aeonic change kind of event for him, for his view, if you're a Nietzschean. At least that was kind of my take. And you criticized his kind of take on Christianity. I think that he had a, a kind of a bias that I think... Um, misunderstood some of the central points of Christianity. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So I think there's a number of responses to be made to be made on behalf of Christian belief that uh, are, are powerful. And to my knowledge, none of these responses have ever been satisfactorily addressed by, by Nietzscheans or by atheists who agree with Nietzsche, at least in the academic context. I can just mention some of these lines of response and, and see what you make of them. And yeah, another thing that I know we want to get into is uh, who really was Nietzsche? And so why does he have the kind of outsized influence he does in the public imagination compared to so many other philosophers, many of whom uh, are mentioned in this book that nobody knows about? And so we should probably also eventually get into a discussion about how the university system in taking up the history of philosophy in the way it has in terms of selecting the figures that it, it presents to students is shaping public perception. And so in, in a way, the history of philosophy becomes a tool of cultural engineering uh, in the way in which it's taken up in the curricula uh, through, through the university system. And I have some thoughts about that as well. But as far as um, defending Christianity or the credibility of Christian belief in response to, to Nietzsche, um, I mean, there's a number of things to say. The sort of more, the, the sort of deepest response and it, it, it's a little esoteric, but I think it's in some ways the most powerful one. And it also, in a way, touches on this whole history of French postmodernism that emerges in the 60s and 70s. And that's kind of why I want to mention it. But there's a, uh, a wonderful uh, Catholic philosopher, Christian philosopher, Jean-Luc Marion, who's now in his 70s, who really came, came into his own in the, in the early 80s with a book called God Without Being. And... One of the things that Marion argues in this text of his is that basically uh, the kind of atheism that you find in Nietzsche is a form of what Marion calls conceptual idolatry. And so he makes an argument, Marion makes an argument that what, what occurs in Nietzsche is that Nietzsche works with a certain conception of God that he then exposes, Marion thinks correctly, for being an idol. 
And so what Marion claims is that when Nietzsche announces the death of God, what's really going on, according to Marion, is that uh, Nietzsche is not showing us that there is no Christian God. He's showing us that a certain kind of bad idea of that God no longer is sustainable. But actually what uh, Marion wants to say is that this actually underscores a sort of Christian theological truth that you find particularly in the tradition of like mystical theology, which is that God in a way ultimately transcends our finite thinking. So the idea of negating God is in a way in principle contradictory, uh, Marion wants to argue, because this is by definition an idea we have in our minds. But of course, God, God is bigger than that, right? So there's a way of you know, flipping the Nietzschean critique of the of God on its head and actually making the point that when Nietzsche announces the death of God, all he's done is just announce the death of a certain conceptual idol. But the real true Christian God, uh, he's always already there and he, he continues to be there. This is Marion's point. Right, which you kind of reflect in your in your article, right? Like Jesus Christ is the same today as before and in the future, right? So whatever somebody else's take, whether it's is fully accurate or even like human conception of it is accurate, something else is still there. So I think that's a central critique of Nietzsche, who, I mean, you asked, I mean, you were going to say, who was Nietzsche? Like this guy didn't end up very well. He didn't have like this, I mean, talk about nihilism, like his end was a, he was a, he talked about a madman. That's what he ended up as too, right? Like maybe his ideas, that's was like his, karmic curse or something is to end up like that would you yeah talk about so that? i mean i could say something about what happened to nietzsche himself uh personally the 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 end he met and then also the 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 life of his work beyond beyond his own life um because that that really starts getting into some of the interesting questions that i have personally as a student of the history of philosophy is like why is nietzsche so popular but um just to maybe put a finer point on the the first question you asked about how to respond to nietzsche's critique of christian belief i had mentioned marion but i mean another thing to say and i and i, I mentioned it already is that well nietzscheans are happy with what they with what they take to be the death of god because they're critical of christian morality so they don't like European Christian civilization and, and the and the norms that were uh, internalized by by Westerners through through Christianity because they think that it's oppressive and that it's an illusion. But if you want to preserve these uh, moral claims and these moral uh, beliefs, then you should be concerned about the supposed death of God. Because one thing that Nietzsche correctly points out, which in a, a number of atheists still to this day deny, is that you'll find atheists who think that you can keep morality without Christianity. Right. And actually, Nietzsche is very honest. He says, no, you can't do that. And not only did, so Nietzsche makes the argument that, well, no, you're not going to be able to preserve Christian morality without belief in Christian, with, without belief in God. Um, so if you want to keep what we could take to be the, 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 the morality of Christianity alive in society, then uh, we should be troubled by the supposed idea that there is no God. Um, so that, that, that's another argument is that you might think, look, if you believe in moral truth, if you think that you don't want to be a moral relativist and you do want to preserve what's been considered Christian morality, then another reason for objecting to Nietzsche is that Nietzsche has made the argument that uh, without a belief in God, that morality can't stand. So if you want to defend that form of morality, you have to defend Christian belief as well. Now, there are, there are, there are philosophers, particularly in the 20th century, who tried to do exactly what Nietzsche said you can't do. So the example that I give in the introduction is an Oxford philosopher named Derek Parfit 
who died not too long ago, maybe like a seven years ago or so. And part of it was famous for trying to resurrect the objectivity of morality without belief in God. So he was engaged in the identical project that Nietzsche himself said is a dead end. And so actually, there's a lot of disagreement in contemporary philosophy between uh, analytic philosophers who are sympathetic to uh, Parfit's claim that, that that we should be moral realists, that morality is objective, but who are also atheists. And then Nietzsche, Nietzscheans, on the other hand, who think that that entire project just doesn't work, that you can't actually defend moral objectivity and you can't argue against moral relativism without believing God. Right, and there's kind of a Nietzscheanism, and Nietzsche kind of has a Luciferian take. So it's not just that God is dead; it's that we killed him. And I think it's even in your intro of the book, something that I hadn't heard before. But you have to take on the character of somebody bold enough to kill God and be in his place. Does that sound? What is that? My is that a correct take on Nietzschean? philosophy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's exactly right. So there's so much to say. The first thing I should say is I didn't quite address your last uh, question, which was about what happened to Nietzsche himself. So without engaging in what academic philosophers were, oh, that's an ad hominem. I'm not attacking the man himself. I'm just describing what happened to him. Now, if you think, if you think that the measure of a philosophy is the life that is led in, in, in accord with it. And I think that that's true. I mean, that's kind of like what an existentialist just thinks, right? That the best test of a philosophy or a set of ideas is how does this work in practice? What happens to people who live in light of it, right? Um, it did not go well for Nietzsche. So Nietzsche did go mad. He had a mental breakdown and he died in a sanatorium basically as an invalid. And there's debates about what the cause of the madness was. Uh, scholars for a long time have speculated that he may have been a victim of syphilis, and, uh, uh, but it's not quite clear. Um, you might make the argument, and again, this is coming from a more sort of conspiratorial point of view that most mainstream academics won't really countenance, but you know, for those of your listeners who are aware of uh, ritual magic and interfacing with demonic spirits, this can lead to madness. So if Nietzsche himself was uh, potentially involved in the occult and he was potentially invo involved in satanic Luciferian activity, it is entirely possible that that activity induced a form of madness in him. Um, so that's just one thing to say. And I do think that there's there are indications and, and indeed evidence that this may actually be the truth behind who Nietzsche really was. And we can get to that later. Um, as for uh, the the question of sorry, what was your other question about Nietzsche? So there's a question about what happened to him specifically, well, and then what happened the, specifically, and then my other question was, is how does it shape society? Yeah. The Luciferian kind mm -hmm. of idea is that correct? That yeah. that is actually it's not just God is dead, where he killed yeah. him. Like the direct quote of him from mm -hmm. the gay sciences: God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves? The murderers of all murderers. What was holiest and mightiest of all the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there as for clean, to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred game shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? We must ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it. Must yeah, we that's... Must not become gods? So he's like, that's a classic kind of Promethean... Mm -hmm. kind of view. Yeah, it's crazy. So that's that you're quoting there from section 125 of the text. And yes, this is the madman speaking. And then, of course, Nietzsche himself goes mad. So one way to look at it is Nietzsche took seriously what it is he said, and he tried to do it, and he went mad. 
But um, as far as the progression of how uh, this philosophy that you find in Nietzsche has progressed, right? Culturally speaking, in terms of uh, the, the nihilistic influence that it's had in our culture more generally, um, what happens is I had mentioned Jacobi. If you think about Jacobi's original concern about the Enlightenment project of reason, these metaphysical systems that you find in Kant and others, his concern was, well, actually, this is going to end up undermining everyday morality and the things that sort of hold hold our um, our everyday uh, practices together. So then we come into Nietzsche, and Nietzsche, about 100 years on from Jacobi, is saying this is already happening. So maybe the average everyday European isn't quite keen to this, but he, Nietzsche already sees the erosion of the confidence in these social practices. And he says, no, like this is what you know comes to be called secularization. This is already happening. And then when you get in, obviously, into the 20th century, it continues and then even hastens. So once you have the first war and then particularly the second war, that's when you really get the predominance of, I would say, cultural nihilism in the arts, in literature, and in philosophy. So when you look at a lot of the French and German philosophers who were very influential in the mid-period of the 20th century, you have someone like Heidegger, you have someone like Camus, and you have someone like Sartre. All three of these guys were very conversant with Nietzsche, engaged uh, considerably with Nietzsche, and thought that Nietzsche was uh, very important in, and that there had to be a response to him. And Sartre and Camus, in a way, are Nietzschean, even though they disagree with Nietzsche on certain fine points. But the way in which they're Nietzscheans is that someone like Sartre doesn't really think that there is value outside or beyond what we will into value. So this kind of Nietzschean idea that you see in that uh, passage from which you quoted, where he says, well, how are we worthy of this deed lest we become gods ourselves? There's this idea that actually man has come to discover that not only is he not made in the image of God, and that in a way he's without essence, but the idea is that he doesn't, he isn't anything besides what he wills to become. And so this is the kind of motif of the Ubermensch, the idea, the Nietzschean Sartrean idea is that value is created through our own, through our own willing, right? And so there's no constraints on the willing apart from what it is that we will. And so this is where you get into, I, I would argue, the kind of Luciferian dimension of it. Because in the in the mid 20th century, coming out of the wake of the wars, there was widespread disillusionment among the public who started questioning whether reality, whether the world makes sense. This is where you get absurdism. And this is where existentialism really takes off, is that you were coming out of the reception of the Enlightenment, which in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries had had a very optimistic view of man and man's future. And it was all predicated on the idea that of reason and the project of reason. And then this supposedly gives out in the 20th century with the wars. And so then people are disillusioned. And this is where we get the sort of normal normalization of, of atheism. Now, the point is, is that when you look at Sartre Camus' atheism, I mean, Camus wrote a book called The Rebel. And so he's all about Prometheus, right? So the idea is that, well, there was this, there was this transitionary period where we went from Christianity, Christendom, Christian morality, into uh, a form of atheism or just secularization. And actually, then when we come out of this process of atheism and secularization, we're now in this sort of transhumanist, Luciferian, post-human world. So then what, what, what the, 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 the suspicion that people like me have is that actually the intellectual history that's driving this, right, uh, 
the philosophical erosion of the belief in God, the questioning of man's being made in the image of God, the elimination of moral truth, the relativization of everything, is this actually really a long, long-standing, you know, decades, century-long sort of spiritual quest on the part of occultists who are working through the history of philosophy and infiltrating our institutions to reshape society in light of their own Luciferian vision. And I think that it's quite plausible that that is the case. It's certainly in the case of some of these figures like Nietzsche uh, himself. In my concluding chapter to this text, I was able to dig out a document. Uh, I think it's Lieber 52, a manifesto from Crowley, where at least Crowley claims that Nietzsche himself was a member of the OTO. And anybody who's familiar with the history of occult uh, practices going all the way back will know that the mystery schools were there in Plato. So there's a long-standing history of philosophers mentioning secret schools, secret wisdom traditions, esoteric knowledge, occult practices. And so I think it's entirely plausible that a number of these very influential figures in the history of philosophy that are presented to the public as just intellectuals were in fact actually Luciferians engaged in different kinds of occult practices and their philosophical systems were deliberately uh, curated and then disseminated through the university system to basically wage a war against uh, uh, Christendom and Christian morality and, and traditional values. I think that's right. We can yeah, we can talk about Nietzsche's influence on Nazi ideology, German right wing ideas. I mean, visits to Nietzsche. I think Hitler went to one of the Nietzsche uh, history museums or something. So it's their will to power, the Ubermensch. You know, it, it pervades that. And so then you have this kind of Luciferianism that creates this huge catastrophic war that results in this thing of doubting God when it's all kind of moving away from God is where there was these kind of negative results in kind of human history. So it's kind well, of- I think, I think, yeah, I think that's the Luciferian psyop is they slander yeah. God for what they themselves engineer, right? So you have these French philosophers like Camus and Sartre and others going around telling the public that God is dead and we're on our own because supposedly these terrible things have happened. But really- it was the occult and the Luciferians who were engineering these events that then they use as a way to try to browbeat the public into 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 atheism. And, um, you know, finally, then, you know, you, you get into the 60s and the 70s and into the 80s as well. I had mentioned Marion. I mean, Marion is this sort of countercultural figure within the French intelligentsia by this point because he's a Christian. And so he's responding to a bunch of French uh, atheists who are very famous, uh, di different structuralists, post-structuralists, surrealists. Uh, all these different postmodernists, but the basic idea behind postmodernism, as it was coined as a philosophical term of art in the 70s by Jean-Francois Lyotard, uh, is that postmodernism is defined as incredulity in the face of what he calls meta-narratives. The idea that there's no overarching, unified uh, sense to be made of the human experience, historically speaking. And so the demise of the meta-narrative is what Lyotard takes to be the quintessential feature of living in a postmodern age. So, for example, like, uh, you know, you'll find traditional Catholics and things who will criticize modernism or the Enlightenment, and they also criticize postmodernism. But the criticism of the Enlightenment was supposed to be, well, you know, there was this autonomous project of reason that was bound to fail. And so the Enlightenment led to this kind of nihilism that we're in. But uh, Leotard's diagnosis is that, well, the, the Enlightenment was already a failure because this was just trying to provide another meta-narrative of what it means to be human. And these are basically what you call metafictions. They're just stories or illusions that don't really add up. And that's kind of the Nietzschean insight is the idea is that 
man supposedly has had these different ways of trying to conceive of his place in the cosmos to make ultimate sense or purpose of the human experience. But these are just stories. They're, they're meta narratives. And we, and we now, you know, we postmoderns no longer are suckers for these things. And we understand that they're no longer uh, to be taken seriously. That's the kind of um, postmodern interpretation of where we find ourselves today. And I mean, how do these postmodernists find meaning? Like, what's their meaning if nothing's meaningful? There's no God. There's no external morality. There's no overarching morality from God. What is the, what is, I mean, I honestly don't really know. I know they just complain that everything is nothingness, but what's their ideal for human life or uh, what's their ideal of human history? I mean, it's everything is just random meaninglessness. Is, is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, there's a number of, number of ways to go here, one of which I think work. I mean, I'm, I'm a critic of all of them, but I mean, there are guys that have tried to work out responses to the, to the, to the death of God and, and nihilism, right? So I had mentioned Jacoby, he defined nihilism as just um, the, the idea that what we take to be true is an illusion, right? That you're left in this kind of like almost disassociated sort of like schizoid, uh, illusionary experience where you're forced to accept that like the world that appears to you is actually an illusion right there is no morality you don't really exist right it's just atoms in the void right so that's one definition of nihilism if you go that way and you assert that the the view of nihilism that Jacoby was concerned with rise is actually the truth so if you think for example that the natural scientific conception of the universe shows that there really are no selves, there really is no free will, there really is no morality, and so that in some sense our experience is just an hallucination, and that it's it's just a delusion, then yeah, you get into these questions about like, so what are you supposed to do with that? I mean, you're just trapped, right? Like, it wouldn't even make coherent sense to say like, well, in light of the fact that we now have evidence for thinking this is true, I choose to believe that that is the case, and now I choose, because what, who are you? What is it? To, right. So you get to these like moments where it's like I had a, a professor of mine one time, like an undergraduate school. He's talking to me. He's like, yeah, you get to these points where you just kind of want to like scream. Like you don't even know what there are no words to describe. So part of the, 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 the nihilistic nightmare is like if you think that everything is an illusion that we ordinarily take to be true, then in a way there's nothing for you to do. Right. That's, so that's one. So now some people go that route. They say this. Now, of course, they're in a way contradicting themselves because they write books and give lectures and do all these things saying that. So you could always just point out like, well, aren't you just contradicting yourself? Right. And if, and if they're being consistent, they'll just say, well, sure, but I can't help that either. Right. So that's one way to go. The other way to go is to say, well, let's try to keep all the things that we used to have that were good, that we no longer can supposedly uh, ground in belief in God. This is kind of in the way what I was saying Derek Parfit, the Oxford philosopher, was trying to do. He was trying to defend moral realism and the objectivity of moral truth without belief in God. So another way to go is to say, well, I'm a nihilist in that, yes, I believe that there is no God, but that's okay because we never actually really needed God to justify and ground all the things that we like anyway. That's another way to go. Um, the third way to go is to say, well, actually, you know, Nietzsche is correct. Uh, the atheistic existentialists like Sartre and Camus are correct. In a way, um, now there is no meaning apart from what we will. And then so what happens is like with Camus, you get to this point where uh, human, the human experience becomes a test to not quit, to keep willing value and meaning, even in the face of the meaninglessness. So you get into this kind of idea that uh, that. Be, it's precisely because in a way everything is meaningless that you become a creator of your own meaning, right? That's another way to go. 
Um, and then, you know, the other way to go is, uh, is to say that, um, uh, well, there is no meaning and that this is massively depressing. And so then you can just tune out and become ap just become apathetic. And I think that's kind of the, the sense of nihilism that you that you find that culturally what people mean by nihilism is the idea like, well, if everything is an illusion, then maybe we don't have free will and there is no God and everything in, its, in a sense is pointless and there's no overarching destiny for mankind as a, as a, as a human race and as individuals, then uh, who cares, just becomes kind of cynical and apathetic. That's another response is just basically accept the supposed fact that there is no meaning and just carry on with your everyday life and sort of resign yourself to that supposed fact. Right, find some pleasures here and there, become kind of a pleasure seeking. But it almost kind of like it explains a lot some of the responses of the general public to stresses or things that are happening like there's no response to dangers or threats it's like they're almost just like in a state of like apathy where it doesn't even matter who cares and i think that that's the nihilism it's not even just as much of the philosophy but the the effect on your people's outlook and responses to external stimuli i mean it's incredible and the self-willing stuff is really incredible like you can see it's just contaminated the left in the united states here i mean can't figure out external reality and you have to have a herd mind to get through it it's really something else like i never believed that this is where we're at but i think it's the offspring of the nihilist uh, view is really that I think well i mean i have a, a few things to say directly in response to what you just mentioned there is that one thing is um yeah this idea of like post-truth my truth that like there is no reality beyond how you interpret it that is in a way nietzsche so i have a friend anthony rudd who recently gave a lecture on Camus. And when he was talking about Camus, he mentioned how, well, you can basically find anything in Nietzsche that you're looking for. So one thing I would say about Nietzsche, what makes me suspicious that he may have been uh, an occultist and that he actually was being very deliberate about um, why it is that he was writing in the way that he is, is that if you think about the work that someone like Jason Horsley's done on Kubrick, right? Uh, his thesis is that Stanley Kubrick is sort of like the pinnacle of anti-cinema because a lot of Kubrick's films like there is actually no right interpretation to the films it's just Kubrick is making a film that he's designing in such a way that he wants each audience member to interpret in his way own way and there is no actual ultimate like one meaning to the film and so this is almost like the deconstruction of cinematic meaning the idea that the director's making a film that is expressly designed to invite the audience to just come up with their own meaning. And I think in a way that is what Nietzsche is doing in his own texts because scholars will have all these disagreements with each other where they adduce different passages that have Nietzsche saying different things. So the question is, well, is Nietzsche contradicting himself or which view does he really hold or does he change his mind? My own view is actually what Nietzsche is doing is that he's performatively enacting this kind of lesser magic, this sort of occultic worldview, whereby he's showing you that in his view, there is no actual right interpretation of reality. Everything just is, is, is a matter of perspectivalism, right? And so I think there's like been this kind of rabbit trail that a lot of academics have gone down, whereby they spend all this time trying to figure out Nietzsche. And in a way, it's a sick joke, I think, on Nietzsche's own part, that he knew people would do this because they don't ever realize that actually... Nietzsche is deliberately eschewing the idea that he wants you to think that there's one interpretation, correct interpretation to his philosophy. I think he's just mocking the idea that there is truth. And so we find this, I think it's kind of seeped into our culture, the idea that like, well, everyone has his own opinion and people can have his own, their own opinions. 
and we can argue about things, but there's really no ultimate truth. And even if there is, there's no way to really decide who's correct. That's a deeply kind of nihilistic, perspectival form of relativism that is a Nietzsche. Um, that's one thing. And then, you know, from a perspective of um, psychological warfare, or even I would say spiritual warfare, when you talk about, you know, like revelation of the method or demoralization, the way that entertainment and art, literature and film and stuff have sort of shaped the public to become kind of like detached and cynical, starting, you might think, with like something like noir in the 40s and 50s. And then you get into the kind of like, you know, hippie hedonism, which then transitions into like the kind of 80s Gen Xer sort of apathy and cynicism, which now gets into the like post-truth kind of like weird Gen Z just who knows how to describe that stuff, right? right. Um, I think that that's just the natural progression of this underlying philosophical viewpoint that's been promoted for a very long time in their university system and elsewhere, um, according to which there is no reality apart from from the one that you will. And that's that's all there really is. And again, yeah, that's definitely an idea that comes, comes from Nietzsche. Right. I mean, and that's, it's like the antagonistic, antagonism uh, philosophically or theologically about God's will and man will from the Christian perspective, like you're trying to do God's will. So this philosophy ends you up where you are almost like your own little, maybe not even acknowledged, but own little mini magician enforcing your will on reality, however you want it. And just trying to get by in a meaningless world. It's the direct opposite of the, uh, of like the Christian tradition where you take active steps and active measures to better yourself, upgrade yourself, even philosophy. I mean, outside of the Christian tradition, you mentioned this word, uh, which I like is eudomonistic heritage, philosophy's eudomonistic heritage, where even in the, I mean, outside of like Messiah, Jesus as Messiah, people bettering themselves or trying to find their best thing. I think that's the de definition of eudaimonia is, I think from Plato, I, you know, my memory is not that great, but I think it's, it means the person is supposed to, to uh, the, the goal is to have a happy life, expressing yourself and challenging yourself right at the right point. And that's how people find happiness in life too. I mean, so eudaimonia is something I'll look back up, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, there's, I mean, there's two things. Go oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Okay. Oh, there's two things going on there. I mean, so, and again, Nietzsche is kind of the destroyer of all this. And then it, it's sort of just taken up in the cultural, the, the culture more generally. So when you get into this like transhumanistic stuff, the post-human, all that's predicated on the supposed discovery that man is without a nature, right? That in a way he defines himself, creates himself through himself. And at least even in the Greeks, for many of them, you mentioned Plato and then also Aristotle as well, there was the idea that man, that there was such a thing as human nature. And the idea is that in virtue of our nature being what it is, then there is uh, such a thing as a success or a failure at, at living in the way in which you ought, in accord or not in accord with nature. And living in accord with nature and developing yourself in, in accord with that nature, that's flourishing, that's happiness. Uh, the idea is that the human life can be purposeful in light of having a goal that's like determined in virtue of what 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 you are and it's not just up for debate or discussion or interpretation that's all out the window with the postmodernism, the abandonment of the idea of there being a human nature um and then the second part i would say is that um you know you have other uh, christian philosophers like uh kierkegaard but then also dostoevsky so i mean dostoevsky makes the point well for, first of all dostoevsky is the one who really starts 
investigating this idea of patricide, the murder of God, killing God, right? This is the underlying motif in a work like the Brothers Karamazov. And it's also in um, Crime and Punishment, as I had said before with Raskolnikov, who becomes this sort of uh, 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 proto-Ubermensch uh, figure. The idea that he's going to transgress uh, moral morality through his own will to test to test himself, but but Dostoevsky makes the point that life would be life would be meaningless without immortality. Life would be meaningless without us having an eternal destiny. So I mean, there, there's two ways in which two layers in which the idea of meaning, purpose in human life has been undermined. First, the the eradication of the idea of there being a human nature, which for the Greeks was something that got worked out through the course of just a ordinary everyday human human life uh, here on this side of eternity. And then also, of course, the eradication of the Christian idea that actually man's destiny, what gives him a purpose, what gives him an ultimate meaning is a goal beyond this, beyond this life in, 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 in eternal life. And uh, I think as both of those beliefs have waned, then you see the rise of cultural nihilism, cultural dysfunction, depression, anxiety, mental illness, because part of what's going on, even though a lot of the people who are um, having succumbed to this ideology don't recognize it themselves, is they're living contrary to their nature. So, I mean, if there is a God, and if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and man's eternal destiny lies in him, if you're living in rejection of that, you don't even believe there's a God, and you don't even think that you have a human nature, you just think that you're, you know, some biological organism that evolved from an ape that's just right. kind of here to like you know just that's just like here to go to work it's like just here to go to work and you know like eat eat at a restaurant you can, that's gonna that's gonna take a toll i mean it's gonna make you miserable yeah. right yeah so yeah and that's i mean it goes back to your statement about why are some of these philosophers promoted why are they romanticized or seen as cool or, or hip like even people have a, usually a pretty myself included superficial understanding of a lot of the philosophers but still like you know Nietzsche's seen as cool and Sartre is like you know mm -hmm. there's no meaning it's existential and, and I think that they're not that cool I think that the ones that you are writing about that people aren't taught maybe Jean-Luc Marion or something like that they're actually the ones people should check out and there's one in the latter part of your book you mentioned I didn't know his name Carl Lowith maybe before we kind of wrap this up, maybe you could talk a little bit about Lowith and why he's important. Yeah, so just, I guess, by way of conclusion, let me just give the, the listeners some examples of, I think, very, very important philosophers who they may not be aware of because uh, these figures will not have been taught at a university, right? They're not gonna be on your reading list, they're not on your syllabus, and they're definitely not gonna be shaping like, you know, Hollywood movies, and they're not gonna be in the art, they're not gonna be in literature. So. You have to really dig for these guys. Uh, you had mentioned Carl Lowith. Um, my my concluding chapter in the volume uh, focuses on Lowith partly because uh, he was a friend and former student of Heidegger, and so in 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 the world of academic philosophy, of course, Heidegger has been massively influential in phenomenology and in other fields. And in fact, uh, the idea of authenticity or being authentic—that whole idea in a way comes from Heidegger because the terminology of authenticity is coined by Heidegger in his 1927 Being in Time. So there's a clear example of a, a philosophical term of art that originates in a, in a dense philosophical treatise that ends up having this huge shelf life that just spills into all these other aspects of, 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 of human culture is authenticity with Heidegger. Now, uh, no one knows Lowith, 
Loweth, as I just said, was a student of Heidegger's. I think one of the reasons why Loweth is not met, is not discussed is that, for one, he was born to a Jewish family, but then he converted to Christianity. And so the idea that someone would be born into a Jewish family and then convert to Christianity is a threat to a, a, a lot of the atheistic uh, interpretation that you find of Christian belief, which is that, well, you just inherit it from your parents or your family. So I think they don't want students to know, well, here's this brilliant phenomenological philosopher who was trained by Heidegger, who's written some incredibly powerful philosophical texts of his own, who chose to become a Christian despite having been uh, born into a Jewish family. So that's one reason people don't talk about Carl Loweth. The other reason is that philosophically speaking, Loweth was, you could say, I think a Christian existentialist. And so uh, in a way, what he was doing was he was responding directly to Nietzsche and he was trying to explain how the Nietzschean critique of the death of God leads ultimately to this kind of uh, post-truth Luciferianism that we're, we now see. But Loweth was writing this back in like the 1940s, so a long time ago. So Loweth was in a way uh, very much ahead of his time because he was writing during a time in which the public was becoming to, uh, was being enamored with people like Sartre and Camus. And at that point, the public reception of nihilism was still just kind of uh, confined to atheism, but but uh, Loweth was someone who, in a way, saw ahead. You could see, like, no, this is going to go into a full blown Luciferianism, a full blown kind of transhumanism, posthumanism. So I think another reason why uh, someone like Loweth isn't taught and people don't know about him is that um, the cultural engineers who have popularized Nietzsche and brought him into the university system and have given him this outsized influence in literature and visual art and everything else, they don't want people to know that there's actually responses to Nietzsche from people like Loweth. So Loweth is one person that I would mention as, as, a, as a philosophical figure who, it doesn't make sense why he would receive no attention at all, other than once you entertain the possibility that the, the our educational system, our higher educational system, our intellectual, uh, you know, uh, like, magazines and, and 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 things like this they're de de deliberately curating a worldview that they don't want someone like Loweth to have a response to i mean when you talk about like cafe existentialism like Sartre and atheism i mean this is like a woody allen movie right so it's like how come hollywood has woody allen making these like you know atheistic existentialist movies but then the public isn't let is isn't informed like well what about carl Loweth? or finally what about someone like jean-luc marion so in the history of phenomenology the last kind of great 20th century phenomenologist that you'll get on a get in a philosophy class if you go to university will basically end in 1945 with Sartre and Merleau-Ponty, who were atheists. But you won't be introduced most of the time to the French phenomenologists who came in that next generation. Um, guys like Jean-Luc Marion, uh, Jean-Luc Chrétien, uh, Jean-Yves Lacoste, a number of these very, very uh, powerful uh, Christian philosophers. Those, those guys are not assigned, their texts aren't assigned, and, you know, mainstream intellectual cultural uh, outlets do not acknowledge them. So, you know, like the New Yorker and all these other places, they'll talk about Sartre, they'll talk about Camus, they'll talk about Kafka, they'll talk about Nietzsche, but they don't let the public know that there's actually right now, the, the leading philosophers, French philosophers right now are Christians. Hmm. That's just not discussed. Yeah. No, they've, I think that that's part of the cultural war of getting Christians out of the public square, like they just like totally uh, forced out or ignored. I mean, it's probably the better way to do it is not even try to take them down, but just completely 
uh, deny their existence. I think that's happened. So many things. And just my lifestyle, it's incredible. Like, I'm 55. Like, so much stuff has changed for the worst. I mean, the culture is a cesspool, man. It's terrible. We're in bad shape. But, uh, Stephen, we are at the 50-minute mark, and we are headed, what, three days from Christmas. Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything I missed? Or uh, maybe you can just kind of sum up uh, this great conversation. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity to be on with you again. Um, I think really my, my 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 final comment that I would like to make, which I've I've sort of mentioned already, is that um, I'm sure your audience is aware that we talk about revelation of the method, we talk about cultural engineering, and I think a huge component of the cultural engineering isn't just academia or the university system. People are increasingly becoming aware that these institutions are captured by pernicious ideologies. But I think what's important for everybody to understand is that there's a deeper philosophical history in the history of ideas that has been driving the kinds of developments that we're now beginning to see. So I would say that, as it were, the, 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 the chickens have come home to roost. But if you want to understand why it is that we're, we're now witnessing the things that we are in our institutions and why we're seeing the kind of societal decay and chaos we are, uh, it, it's useful to kind of trace the, the progression of how we've come to where we are through the history of ideas and then consider, as I do and other people have, well, what was really the motivation of some of these philosophical figures that have the influence they do are they potentially involved in uh, a cult society? So when we look at Hollywood and we look at these other industries, you know, it's pretty commonsensical that, yeah, these a lot of these guys are elevated to the positions they are. They're given access to the projects that they are. Their work is promoted in the way that their work is promoted because they're part of some kind of agenda and, and uh, esoteric agenda. And I think the same is true in the history of ideas. I think that a number of the philosophical figures that have gone on to have the influence they that they enjoy uh enjoy that that status because they were part of something uh bigger than what the public at this point might acknowledge or, or understand yeah i agree with that i think marx was writing like heavy duty luciferian poetry and then mm -hmm. this whole the whole communism is very god is dead it's the same thing right it's the opiate so yeah there's a really good there's a really good book on Marx. It was called Marx and Satanism by uh, Warbrand. Warbrand, yeah, the Romanian priest. Yeah, yeah. So and I think yeah, Marx, right. yeah, Marx had like intelligence connections. I mean, there are a lot of those Freemas Freemasonic connections. Uh, yeah, you really have to question why is it that you know we all know Nietzsche, but we don't know Karl Lowith, right? Or why does everybody know? Why does everybody know Sartre, but? The public has no idea of like five different fantastic philosophers in France, in Paris right now, who are the direct inheritors of that philosophical legacy who are still publishing today. Nobody knows them. Right. No, it's, it's very telling. I think it was the League of the Just was kind of the mysterious group behind Marx and financed Das Kapital. If I remember, I got to go back and look. But yeah, they all have that one sign. I don't know if there's any validity, but they're always sitting with their hand inside their shirt, you know. Like that's oh, yeah. a secret society. And even Nietzsche has that too, by the way. At a very young yeah. age, very strangely, like maybe that's a posture, but I've heard that that's a secret society gesture, but I wouldn't know. I'm not part of it. Steve, thanks for coming on. Great to talk with you again. Where's the best place for people to find this book, Finding Meaning? Well, uh, let's see. You can go directly to the publisher site, which is Within Stock. 
or you could go to my website, stephendelay.com, and find a link through there, or you could just go directly to um, Barnes and Noble or you know even Amazon. So, stephendelay.com. I'll put a link to your website. And is that the best place if people want to follow up or have any additional questions? Is that the best place to contact you? Yeah, if you go there, uh, they'll be able to find my email address, and then I also do have a Twitter profile as well. So I'm I'm easy to get a hold of. And that's at Stephen Delay, right on Twitter X, whatever. Is that right? Yeah, I think I think my my tag thing or whatever is like Stephen Delay Four or something. Delay four. Okay, like that. I'll, I'll <laughs> check. I'll put those links in the show notes. But thanks so much for your time. Again, the author Stephen Delay, last name spelled D E L A Y, and the title of the book we talked about is Finding Meaning: Essays on on philosophy, nihilism, and the death of God, just published October 2023. Thanks so much for your time. That's data. Come on, StreamYard. Let's see if it's not over yet. We're still live. Sometimes it takes forever to get it get done. My daughter's probably on the internet or something, streaming away. Stop. Anyway, that was a great talk. It's not a, we're still alive, by the way. I don't know when this is. There we go. End it. Yes, I want it to end it. It's asking me, do you want to end the stream? I keep hitting the button. End. End. Come on. You got any plans for uh, the holidays? It's not ending. We're still alive. Uh, this yeah, never happened. Life. My wife and I are going to be here just hanging out. Um, you're you're in North Carolina, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've nice. been in North Carolina for a while. So I'm a native. Cool. I'm originally from California. And she's from Texas and ended up cool. here. So um, what part of California? Yeah. I was. I'm from San Jose. So oh, you're nice. down in L.A., right? Yeah. So yeah, my but folks I'm, live. Yeah. My folks live. My folks live in Slow. So every once in a while, I still get back to California. Oh San yeah, I love Slow. Yeah, yeah, I love Slow. I drive through it's there nice. all the time. I'll be driving yeah, through there. Um, on the 26th, I'm going to go visit my mom. I don't know what's going on. The stupid thing won't stop. Let's see if I can. Well, I will also want to say, I'm sorry that my, um, no. my camera feed was really, was really bad. It doesn't bad. matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Most of my listeners are audio on Spotify. I just kind of do this, uh, just to see people, you know, like this is what I use. It's really, it's usually very, what the fuck is going on? It's usually well, very this, uh, uh, useful and hassle-free. This is giving me a hard time. We're still live, still recording. I don't know what's going on. I don't even well, know if know, it'll stop if I if I log out. Well, that's the thing. I guess if we just leave the studio, there's no guarantee that we'll be able to keep the recording. Yeah, I'm going to leave and come back. I'm going to leave and come back. Take care, man. I'll talk to you. Okay. Yeah, send me an email or something like that, but happy holidays, and thanks so much. Okay. Well, congrats if, on the if book. If if we lose this video, don't worry about it. We can just redo it. But hopefully, it'll be there. Oh no! It, it this is already on Rockfin. It's done. Oh, it's, okay. It, we're not Fantastic. Gonna any, yeah, we're not going right, to lose man. anything. Okay. Right, Merry Christmas. Take care. Merry Take Christmas. care. God bless. Yeah. Stop.